we go. So this is uh, study number six in our psalm study. We're going to uh, we're going to finish off tonight uh, by looking at a couple of uh, psalms that relate to the psalmist view of humanity. And then what I'd like to do is I want to show you it's about a half hour clip of, of Dr. Walter Brueggemann's um, take on the Psalms as a, a countercultural uh, type of presentation. And it's really good. And so that's kind of how I want to end our evening. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be primarily in two spots. We're going to be at Psalm 51 and Psalm 22 tonight. And we're going to begin with Psalm 51 first. So part number six, uh, the viewpoint of humanity in the Psalms. Now, just like there was a diverse representation of uh, God in the Psalms, there is uh, also that same diversity in terms of our understanding of human beings in the Psalms as well. And just like uh, our understanding of God that comes out of the Psalms, uh, likewise, our understanding of uh, what it means to be human is still culturally embedded, and it's very diverse. Um, and it, what's very interesting to me is the portrait of mankind in the Psalms is always dire directly related to the viewpoint of God. So to ask a question like, what is a human being? The Psalms always direct it back and connects it back to God. So you see a quote there uh, by a commentator, James Luther Mays. Uh, and he says, uh, when we ask, what is a human being? We can only ask that question after we have learned to ask, uh, what is God or who is God? Because the two are intertwined in uh, the Psalms. But a huge study um, that is part of the theological spectrum is a term uh, called anthropology. And anthropology has a lot of different directions that you can take. Unfortunately, uh, what we're limited to in the Psalms is that culturally embedded perspective of mankind rather than uh, also being able to draw from the fields of sociology and psychology and so forth. So when the psalmists write about mankind, they're doing so from their own cultural perspective without the opportunity, the privilege, and the knowledge of these other um, fields of uh, study like sociology and psychology. So we always have to kind of keep that in the back of our mind when we're reading the Psalms, that we're give, being given a perspective, but it's not a full perspective, because I think what is a human being is a question that has continued to be answered uh, all through the ages, and especially in light of extra uh, discoveries and, um, and insights that we have gained over the many centuries of civilization. So with that in mind, what happens now is you can look at the Psalms and they basically boil down to two perspectives if you want to use uh, big categories. Uh, so that's where I want to begin with Psalm 7, uh, 51 is anthropological view of mankind. Number one is the representation that mankind is a sinner. 
And you'll notice uh, Psalm 51 is one of those long title psalms. Uh, it says at the top there, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, when you look at that title, it is based upon the fact that Psalm 51 is a confessional psalm. So it's a perspective of mankind being uh, sinful, but there's no real historical footnote here that would suggest that this is the exact uh, cause of this psalm. Now, you're probably familiar with uh, the story of David and his uh, adultery with Bathsheba comes out of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But most scholars think that the identification with David here is related to who he is within the history of the nation, number one, as a king, and number two, what he did with a, a woman that he saw bathing and, and called for her, committed adultery with her, and then had uh, her husband Uriah killed to cover up her pregnancy. So um, that probably is the ultimate of shame. And this psalm is acknowledging, not in, in the psalm itself, it doesn't acknowledge anything in relationship to, hey, that time that I had a relationship with Bathsheba. It's very generic as a confessional psalm. So what has happened is most scholars think that the ancient editors put this long title in because it is the ultimate or the epitome of what David either did, number one, or should have done uh, in light of what he did with Bathsheba. The thing to be careful of is that there is no actual, in the psalm, there is no, act, no actual historical footnote that says it was related to David. So we either take it by faith that the title is correct historically, or we take it by faith that the editors are pinning this, if you will, on David because uh, as the head of the um, nation of Israel, this best illustrates what an individual should do uh, when they uh, they commit sin, they should confess it, and so forth. So you're probably familiar with this psalm. I'm going to read just the first six verses. As it is a fairly lengthy psalm, and you can come back to it if you'd like and read the rest of it. But I think the heart of it is in these first six verses. So let me read that. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Just a footnote there. Uh, you'll notice that the transgressions is plural and the implication by the fact that this is a Hebrew poetry parallel, the my sin is probably not singular there. It's the idea of uh, our sinfulness. Verse four, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Uh, let me read verses 7, 8, and 9 too, because that's pertinent as well. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So what you notice here in this psalm is that uh, the writer is, being, uh, is confessing his shortcomings, his sinfulness, and his desire to feel cleansed from his sinfulness and a desire for uh, a pure heart. That's in verse 10, create in me a pure heart. Now, the most definitive part of this psalm theologically has come from verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Uh, you'll notice in there, this becomes one of those um, proof texts for what is often called original sin. And many theologians uh, from a more, from a, a pretty reformed perspective, i.e. Luther and Calvin uh, perspective, uh, would suggest that uh, all human beings are born sinners. Uh, they're actually conceived in sin. And um, so even a baby is in need of salvation. Now, that brings about a whole lot of different complexities. Um, if, if we are sinful in our conception, then uh, obviously uh, we are hell-bent, to use uh, just a vernacular, from the time we are born. It also places a lot of emphasis on um, Jesus as well. And I think most uh, Christians probably assume that uh, the reason for the virgin birth is to escape, uh, is to escape uh, conceptional sinfulness um, uh, because Mary was a virgin and she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She, though, would have been conceived in sin from her mother, which then begins a long string of uh, was her mother sinless? And then you can kind of keep on going back from there. So it gets a little dicey there. The other thing that's also uh, putting a lot of stress and strain on this verse is um, what happens if Jesus, who is conceived from Mary, um, if, if he uh, was sinless because of the virgin birth, then does that mean only men are the ones that pass along the sinful nature, not women? So there's a lot of moving parts there when we put a lot of emphasis and weight upon this one verse, which has been done for years and years. Um, and a lot of it is to pr prove original sin, and it is to prove that mankind is in need of salvation uh, from the very start, because our sinful nation, nature has been passed down. So what then happens a lot of times is different denominations will put an emphasis, and I think your your liturgical um, churches like uh, Catholicism and some others like that 
put a heavy, heavy emphasis that you got to get the baby baptized uh, as soon as possible, uh, because if that baby got sick and died, um, he or she is in jeopardy. So what I would suggest is to be cautious by not putting that much weight on one singular verse. I think you have to take into account the New Testament, the epistles, and so forth. But it this, again, is a psalm. Uh, it is a poem. It's a confessional thing. What the author actually meant um, by I was conceived in sin is hard to say. But what we do see is that he is in uh, sorrow for certain things that have happened. Is it individually or is it representative of the nation as well? So there's a number of things that are going on here. Um, I think this verse um, is simply a plea for grace in many respects. The problem uh, that the psalmist is uh, facing is being appealed to uh, for God's grace, have mercy. That's the way the psalm begins. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed love or unfailing love, and according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. What's interesting here is um, this this feeling that we have uh, when we look at newborn babies. We see them as cute and plump and a little bundle of joy and a lot of work. But, um, uh, you know, if you take just that one verse and put a lot of weight on it, then you can create a whole system that has a lot of consequential effects. That's all I'm saying. Um, what's interesting here in this psalm is there's no sacrifice elements here, um, no Levitical sacrificial system. Uh, it's simply a plea for God to forgive. And I think the psalm is probably implying that God in his unfailing love and great compassion will do so. Um, but you won't, you won't find any atonement theories here in this psalm. It's a simply a way of getting back into relationship with God. So you have some thoughts there, but that is this psalm is the psalm that helps define one uh, anthropological view. This mankind has fallen short. Mankind is sinful. Thoughts there? Questions? Um, I've got a couple comments. I'm tying trying to tie it all together you were talking about the line in here that calls for baptism of babies but um two things that would work against that is david in i don't know whether it was kings or samuel uh or both said that he would see the son that he had with bathsheba again he be reunited with him that he was waiting for him and then coming from a very deep baptist background they always mentioned 
with something called the age of accountability, which mm -hmm. I could never find anything about in the Bible. I can't either. And so I'm not sure where that comes from. But it was more that you had to be of an age where you knew right from wrong. Yeah, you bring up a great point. Um, when, when a system uh, holds a, a strong position, like let's say from a Baptist perspective, it's believed that baptism should be um, done by an individual that knows what they're doing, adult baptism, or at least uh, children that recognize that they're accepting Christ as their savior and so forth. So what do you do with babies since you've omitted the baptism option there? So what Baptists have done, and others as well, is say, well, but God won't hold those young children accountable for their sins until they come to an age of accountability. Um, that is, I think, a consequence more than anything of being trapped within the system that they're trying to hold. I don't see anywhere that there's an age of accountability in, in the scripture. Uh, I think that's putting, again, that's why I say, I think we're putting too much stress and strain on this psalm. I think it's a personal confession. It might be representative of a communal confession as well. I think the editors probably pinned the historical note about David on this, because if there's any any psalm that would be pertinent to that incident mm -hmm. out of Second uh, uh, Samuel, um, it would be this one. But I, I, again, I don't see any in the psalm itself, any historical footnotes that would actually suggest David is the one and only one this applies to first and foremost. So um, I, I agree with you. I, there's, um, there's these elements here that when you hold to this, then this pops up. It's like one of those uh, things that's like jello, you squeeze it here and it comes out <laughs> here type thing, you know, it, it, it's hard to hold everything together with it. And maybe it might be better not to put that much theological weight on it uh, to insist that that's what it's teaching. I'm not sure that this psalm is teaching anything about original sin. I think what this psalm is probably suggesting is that um, there are elements of of who we are as human beings from the time we enter into this world um, that shape who we are and influence the decisions we make too. I think that's part of why he says in verse six, you desire truth in the inner parts. It, it, that's a kind of a maturity process. And it's, he says, you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. In other words, it's not just commands from outside. There's a wisdom and a and a, a maturity that has to come from the inside as well. And um, part of that is recognizing both your strengths and your sinfulness and continuing to stay close to God. And I think that's probably where the rest of it's going. Um, you, you know, I mentioned before that there's not really an atonement theory in this psalm, but there is 
this idea of, uh, in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite uh, heart, O God, you will not despise. So the idea of, of forgiveness then prompts the sacrifice, verse 19, to go to Jerusalem to offer up a thanksgiving offering, burnt offering, uh, as a way of showing your your love and faithfulness and thankfulness to God. So, so anyways, let's flip the coin. <laughs> so now you have this pretty heavy image of the sinfulness of mankind that's found in the Psalms. But on the other end is the exalted image Um and anthropological view number two that you find in the Psalms is this elevated status as a vice regent of uh, of God as king. So go over to Psalm 8 for a moment. You're probably familiar with this one too. Uh, psalm 8 is a, a psalm uh, that it, it also says is a psalm of David interestingly enough. So if this, if both of them are Psalms of David, uh, then it's interesting that there are two ends of the spectrum here. But listen to how it begins. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all the swim the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, so that tells a little bit different story about humanity. And this is a, a praise psalm, although there's no call to praise here for the community. It's simply stating that God is majestic in all that he has created. But out of all that he has created in the heavens and on the earth, there is this representation of the kingly rule of God that is placed into the hands of human beings. So here we find human beings, although they're mortal, although they're sinful, yet they are not only image bearers, as Genesis 1 tells us, but they're crowned with honor and glory, and they're entrusted with responsibility and dominion. And, um, and so this psalm is one of kind of a unrestrained cultural optimism. Uh, mankind has all this potential because of who we are. So maybe the point of the psalm is uh, what God intended humanity to be, he still intends for humanity to be. In other words, uh, to lean into the fact that we are created as uh, God's image bearers, as God's co-regents, and we are entrusted with responsibility to do what is right toward humanity and toward the creation itself. 
So that is another view that you'll find in, in, in the different Psalms as well. But this one, Psalm 8, pops its head up in Hebrews chapter 2. And you can read this on your own. Uh, I'm not going to turn there, but the point of the author of Hebrews is humanity had a responsibility to do, but they failed to do it, but Jesus did it. He completed it. He he actually lived up as the son of man uh, to the potential of carrying out God's intended um, purpose on earth. So if for the author of Hebrews, Psalm 8 is no longer about just human vocation, but it points to the fact that we all fall short. Of course, that's what Paul says. We all sin to fall short of the glory of God. And that Jesus had to complete this um, this project that God is on to entrust human beings with delegated authority. So some thoughts on that at all? So this brings me to uh, the Psalms and Jesus. One other Psalm that I want to just take a, a peek at before we watch the video is Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is a fairly lengthy Psalm. We are most, um, we are most familiar with verse one because it's one of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from the words of my groaning? So this psalm is in the, the words of Jesus um, as he hangs on the cross, which has led some people to think that he's fulfilling the psalm as, as if this is a prophecy. I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, if you look closely, what you're going to see is Matthew, where, the, uh, where you have the account of Jesus saying, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, is after a long string of comparison to this psalm. So if you're to read through this psalm, what you would have is Matthew using this psalm all the way through chapter 27. So you, you'd have to have two Bibles, one in Psalm 22 and one in Matthew 27. And you'll see that the themes are repeated all through Matthew 27. So here in verses 6 and 7, it says, I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by men and despised by people. And all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. That's exactly what Matthew 27 says, as people were standing at the cross, they're shaking their heads about Jesus and insulting him and so forth. And I thought this was fascinating uh, that there is so much in this psalm that Matthew uses uh, that I don't think it's a direct prophetic fulfillment by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think the entire episode of Jesus as presented in Matthew 27 is, is akin or compared to, paralleled to uh, Psalm 22. And it's done intentionally 
because some things are verbatim, but some things are by uh, hints. And, and that is um, different things that are happening. A company of evildoers encircles me. Well, in Matthew 27, those aren't the words that are used, but there is a group that's uh, encompassing Jesus around the cross. So you can look at that if you if you have interest in that. Yeah, I think um, this psalm uh, is kind of like a end of the movie type of scene uh, that it is ultimately wrapped up in Jesus. And I think that's kind of what this is doing too in Hebrews chapter two, that Jesus is the point of not just comparison, but of completion. And that's I, what I think is happening in Psalm 22. So do you have some thoughts there, some comments there? Okay, so keep this little chart close to you. Uh, and I want you to look at it as we watch this video. Yeah, we're going to go past eight o'clock just for a, by a few minutes, but I think it's well worth listening to. Dr. Walter Brueggemann is probably the most renowned uh, Old Testament scholar uh, over the last 50 years. He has written over 100 books. Um, and if you have not heard of him, it's primarily because um, he is technical and a lot of his material is used in seminaries. Uh, it's not popular Christian material you're going to find at the Christian bookstore. But listen to his words here. And I think the Psalms as a whole then is well summarized by him setting up a contrast between the world that we live in versus the counter world of the Psalms. So let's watch. Okay, this is, uh, this is much easier. I'm going to talk about the Psalms which is sort of calls uh, to Newcastle among you. I will begin with two questions. First question is, why is it that the Psalms hold such a compelling place in our faith, our worship, and our spirituality? Why is it that ministers carry New Testaments along with the Psalms into the hospital? What Can everybody hear that okay? Can you hear the sound okay, everyone? Is it that we get a psalm every Sunday, or at least a snippet of the psalm that is carefully edited? Why is it that someone after a stroke can hardly speak, but can still say, the Lord is my shepherd? How is it that this old poetry compels it? Second question is, why is it given such a preoccupation with the Psalms that we only know six? We know 23, and I will lift up my eyes to the hills in 121, and God is our refuge in 46, and a few others. Even liturgical churches like the Episcopal Church manage to disregard Psalms that do not fit what has become our happy, reassuring mode of the gospel 
in our therapeutic culture where you leave out a few verses. And even the most faithful nuns cannot tolerate some verses in Psalm 109 with its thirst for vengeance. So my two questions are, why do we cling to the Psalter and why do we limit it? So why do we have such a love-hate relationship to the Psalter? I suggest that one answer will answer both questions. We live in a world of ideology, of sign and symbol and memory that is uncriticized, and we are on notice that the Psalms mediate to us a counter world that is in tension with our closely held world and often contradicts our closely held world. On the one hand, we yearn for a counter world that is characterized by trust and assurance. We are eager for a new, improved world that is occupied by the Good Shepherd that yields help from the hills, that attests a reliable refuge and strength. That is why we continually line out these psalms. That's why we want to hear them at the hospital and at the graveside and in many other venues of need. But the same reason we avoid so much of the Psalter, because we know that the counterworld of the Psalms is raw and risky and disputatious and contesting and contesting, and it is more than we can take, because the God we meet in the Book of Psalms is not a benign object of custodial religion in which we specialize, but is a character and an agent and a force who operates in free ways that disturb us. So we are both drawn to the Psalms and we flee the Psalms. And so I propose that every time the church lines out a Psalm and every time a pastor preaches from a Psalm, we are performing a counter world that we welcome and that we dread. So what I want to do in this hour is to line out our dominant world that I will do in seven points and then reflect the counter world of the Psalms in seven points and then make seven affirmations about the God who indwells the counter world. So seven and seven and seven. It's all very sabbatical. that we inhabit. First, that this is a world of anxiety that is rooted in scarcity. It is a world that is worried about running out and not having enough and not having done enough and not having been enough and not measuring up and not being valued or safe or esteemed. It's an orange alert world and I believe it is part of the policy of present powers to keep us on orange alert because those in deep anxiety are more likely to conform. Beyond the present alert with which we live, the advertising liturgies of capitalism on television constantly remind us that we have not yet arrived, that we do not yet have the right product that will make us safe and happy and prosperous. It is surely the case that to some extent anxiety 
is the inescapable human condition, but to dub ours as the age of anxiety is to acknowledge that ours is acutely so, and to some extent that acute anxiety is ideologically produced in an intentional way. So we travel at the edge of scarcity and we ration. We ration health care and food. We ration grace, limiting those who have access to our goodies, whether immigrants who want a safe home or women who want to be ordained or gays who want to be married. We are worried if the goodies are shared more widely, there will not be as much and there will not be enough for us. Second, this world of anxiety evokes an ideology of greed. So Gordon Gecko spoke for many of us when he said greed is good. The outcome is a rapacious world in which those who can get more, more, those who have more and with greedy appetites, there is then a need for cheap labor and the wounding of those who are not fast enough or born well enough or positioned well enough for the rat race. Greed becomes the force to break up neighborly relations and to transform those relationships into a contest, dispute, and conflict. The shrill work of the Tea Party movement is only one noticeable expression of that conflict in which we are propelled to need more and want more and have more, most often at the expense of the neighbor. Thus, the ideology of anxious scarcity generates artificial needs. That greed then requires fatiguing overwork, endless 24-7 electronic connection, and insatiable multitasking, all in an effort to get ahead or in an effort to stay even and not fall hopelessly behind. Such an embrace of greed is, of course, an endless process because limitless desire is never satisfied and not to expand is to fail. Third, the drive of anxiety that propels greed leads to a notion of self-sufficiency, either in the winsome notion that I can be self-sufficient and make it on my own, or the dread recognition that I must be self-sufficient as all the others are competitors. The lure of self-sufficiency is voiced by Pharaoh in this shameless declaration in Ezekiel 29. He says, the Nile is my own. I made it. And Pharaoh, of course, is echoed in the parable of Luke 12. I will tear down my barns and build booker barns, and I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say, so do you have ample goods? Eat, relax, drink, and be merry. I was recently doing a presentation at Augsburg College in Minneapolis about the abundance of creation and the God-givenness of food, and they invited a positivistic sociologist to respond to me. And he assured me in his public response that the tomatoes are man-made. There is no mystery about them. They are not God-given, but they are distributed solely by human effort. And I didn't have the wits to say that must be why they taste so bad. <laughs> Fourth, our closely held world of endless competitiveness is a system that cannot keep its promises 
of safety, prosperity, and happiness in a, a ridge overlooking the Ohio River. There are these uh, palaces, one of which my friend Andy inhabits. These are the, where the really rich people live, could live, look up and down the river. And one of them has a Mitt Romney sign in his yard. And then next to it is a sign that says, it's not working. I don't know what it would have to work for the occupants of that house to think it's working. It doesn't work. And so we are seduced into denial to pretend that the system works, that we have mastered the system and benefit from it. And we keep up appearances, even if only to match the Joneses, who are also keeping up appearances. But of course, between the surface, beneath the surface of the pretense, we know better. We know that a car will not make us super. We know that a different beer will not surround us by friends, even though no one ever talks in a beer ad. <laughs> we know that a better shave will not give us a lover. We know that more weapons will not bring us safety. We know that wars produce displaced persons and not haves. We know that the violence of the NFL is a mighty narcotic for us. Never about anything more than bread and circuses of virility and money and power. We know that the so-called political dialogue is all about controlling the wealth for those who manage the process. We know all that, but we collude. Because if we are not team players, we will not be friended. And we will drop out. And consequently, we bury, we, we bury the hurt-filled truth that will surface only at night when we are alone and our defenses are down, or will surface in random acts of violence that are inexplicable. We collude after a restless night of candor for the sake of the next day when we re-engage the performance of the system yet again, even in our gnawing awareness that it does not work. Fifth, because we cannot sustain such denial and from time to time gasp before the truth that our world is not working we end in despair. There are lots of honest reasons for despair now because the old world some of us have loved as white tenured males is now gone. The church at the center of the village will never come back and the best generation now yields to a generation of self-preoccupied narcissistic people and it becomes harder and harder to care about the common good. We have this sinking feeling about our funded retirement, and we now not only lock all the doors, but we cower even behind locked doors. We know enough to know that something strange has happened to our environment and to our health, and we sense that we are in free fall and we are nowhere near the bottom. We become short-tempered and inhospitable and uncaring, and we are sapped of human energy and left alone in our woefulness, not believing in any possible repair. Sixth, it is all too much. 
And as a result, we engage the welcome delete button that is labeled amnesia. If only I could blank that all out, I could live now in this moment in the world immediately in front of me. There is so much I cannot afford to remember about the dark side, about the dark side of our common life, about Milai and Auschwitz and Hiroshima and the continuing legacy of slavery. I do not want to know any more about atrocities committed by my government on my behalf. I do not want to think any more about the fraud of food and drug labeling and the ways in which big money works invisibly to shape my life. I do not want to worry anymore about the scars of slavery and the burns of napalm. I do not want to be reminded of the ovens of Poland or the walls in Israel or Arizona. I do not want to know how many gay people there are or how many young women are sold every day into sex slavery. I do not want to hear about the violence in our prisons. I just want to sing praise hymns that have no narrative to remind us of anything out beyond this moment of pious goodwill. Is that too hard? <laughs> I prefer don't ask, don't tell amnesia. Don't tell me and I won't ask. And I will get through the day in my isolated innocence. Moses said over and over in the book of Deuteronomy, take heed lest you forget what I want to forget and not bear the hurt of all of that misadventure that continues in our common life. It is enough to be here and now in my family and my little tribe gladly disconnected. Seventh, You're only seven, you'll be glad to know. <laughs> the outcome of that strategy is that we arrive at a normless world because without God, without tradition, and without common good, everything is possible. We have arrived at an out-of-control policy that takes torture now as acceptable policy. We have watched the disappearance of civic courtesy and the emergence of crudeness and shrillness and road rage that are emblems of the new privatism. Without God, our tale is told by an idiot unless I can have a private meaning. Without God, might makes right so that we must acquire all the muscle we can and call it defense. The outcome of such a normlessness is that I am left at risk. And when they come for me, there'll be no one to speak up for me. Well, perhaps that picture is too dark. And I am aware that there are important islands of generosity and there are oceans of health. I do not minimize those gestures and actions to the contrary, but my conviction is that the ideological systemic force of this way in the world has generated a context that is anti-human in its assumption In threat and glad submission to God. The threat is named. This is all in 27. Evil do doers who assail adversaries, foes, and encamped army enemies, false witnesses. And the threat is countered by the reality of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? For he will hide me in the shelter of his 
In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me on a high rock. Verses 1 to 4 are a statement of confidence. What follows after that is a plea that the God trusted will perform again. So we get a series of imperatives. Here, be gracious. Do not hide. Do not turn away. Do not cast me off. Do not give me up. The psalm, I suggest that the psalm pivots on the word though, nevertheless, notwithstanding, which is an act of defiance, verse 3, though they rise up against me, yet I will be confident. Wouldn't it be great to have the whole choir say, yet? So in Psalm 46, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. It's an act of defiance. Or in Habakkuk 3, I did a little word study of though. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olives fail and fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the herd and there is yet I will rejoice in the Lord, in the God of my salvation. Second, the counter testimony of the Psalms contradicts our world of greed by mediating to us a world of abundance in which greed is completely inappropriate. The ground for such abundance that refuses greed is the glad doxological affirmation that God is the creator who has blessed and funded the earth to be a gift that keeps on giving. Our anxiety that funds greed is undone by abundance that funds gratitude. Divine generosity is not determined by quantity or possessions, but by a panoply of gifts that defy quantification. The doxological attitude of the Psalms makes grasping for more inappropriate. Psalm 145 is a case study as an alternative to greed. The psalm begins with an inventory of divine miracles, works, mighty acts, majesty, wonderful works, awesome deeds, greatness, abundant goodness, righteousness. They're all synonyms. They're all synonyms for the inexplicable, limitless goodness of God. <laughs> And then in verse 13, 145.13, you get a barrage of rhetoric that gives accent to all. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord lifts up all who are falling, raises up all who are bound on the eyes of all of the you give them the food in due season. You satisfy the desire of all living things. The Lord has just in all his ways and kind in all his doings. The Lord is there to all who call him, all who call upon him. Truth. He fills his heart of all who fear him. The Lord watches over all who love him. 
as you know, versus 15 and 16 are like a much-used table pair. The eyes of all wait upon you and give them a season. You open your hand, satisfy and desire of every living thing. Thanks for food is a resistance to the temptation to greed. We eat because it is a gift. It is given as a gift. It is not an achievement or an accomplishment or a possession. And creation is a gift that keeps on giving so that loaves abound. We need not hoard. We need not acquire a surplus. We need not build an endowment. Because God gives far more abundantly than we can ask for imagine. Now, I must be honest to remind you that there's one other all in verse 20. All the wicked he will destroy. We tend to leave that out. But it may be taken exactly as the greedy who do not sign on for divine abundance, who skew the neighborhood, confiscating food that belongs to others. And so bringing anxiety into the community. Third, the counter testimony of the Psalms contradicts our world of self sufficiency by mediating to us our ultimate dependence. Psalm 10 amounts almost to a sociogram. Of social power, there are the sufficient who acknowledge no accountability or dependence. They have dismissed God as a bad idea. Who needs God? For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart, those greedy for gain, curse and renounce the Lord. They say God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are there is no God. They think in their heart we shall not be moved. They think in their heart God has forgotten. He will never see it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then it goes on to say that those are the people who lurk in secret like a lion in its covert. They lurk that they may seize the poor, they seize the poor and drag them off in their net at cheap labor. The two always go together. Get rid of God, and you can get rid of the neighbor. The psalm celebrates the voice of the vulnerable who assert their dependence on God. They establish a working alliance with God who in this Psalm 10 is recruited into the cause of the vulnerable. Thus, self-sufficiency is countered by bold imperatives. Rise up! Terror no more. The those who strike terror are the self-sufficient who believe they are permitted to do whatever they are able to do. But the counter-reliance upon the God of justice means that such self-sufficiency cannot finally prevail. Fourth, the counter-testimony of the Psalms contradicts the world of denial by giving us a world of abrasive truth-telling. 
The, psalm the Psalms refuse denial and insist that the truth of pain must be told. The entire genre of lament, complaint, and protest constitutes a refusal of denial, a practice in which the church colludes when it avoids the lament psalms. The truth-telling of lament is important not only for the particular truth it tells, but because of its witness that truth-telling is not only necessary, but it is permitted. So I decided to focus on Psalm 44, which is one of the worst ones that we never use. It is a complaint of Israel in its suffering and abandonment in a national defeat. Verses 1 to 8 are a wonderful song of praise, and you could select those eight verses and it'd be okay. But then in verse 9, you, you have rejected and abased us and have not gone out with our armies. You have turned us back to the foe and our enemies. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us a taunt. You have made us a byword. And then follows a double, yet. The first one, absolving Israel of any guilt, and the second one, convicting Yahweh. All this has come upon us, yet we have not forgotten you or been false to your covenant, yet you have broken us in the haunt of jackals and covered us in deep darkness. You feel better if you say that. <laughs> And then five imperatives, arise, awake, arise. That's, that's, that's an Easter prayer. Arise, awake, do not cast us off. Rise up, redeem. And then three rhetorical questions. Why do you sleep, Yahweh? Why do you hide your face? Why have you forgotten our oppression? These are not requests for information. <laughs> Israel is not afraid to declare out loud that the system that, over which God presides is not working and Israel will not put up with it anymore. Hmm. Fifth. Counter-testimony of the Psalms contradicts our world of despair by meeting to us a world of hope. I'm going to comment on 42-43, but I just read a doctoral dissertation on the farewell discourses in John, suggesting that it's a commentary on Psalms 42-43. But, you know, you have to find a topic for your dissertation. So the whole of creation sings an ongoing song of praise, 42.8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night this song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. But that wonderful affirmation is a context for the reality of despair. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? What folk ask the psalmist is what he asks himself. Where is my God, the one who helped me in the past? Now it is daytime and nighttime, divine absence, endless crying, enemies that oppose deadly wounds, taunting adversaries. But the psalmist refuses to give in 
to the conclusion that might be drawn about such divine absence. He refuses to let circumstances of abandonment and helplessness define him, and so in the face of such trouble, he issues a command to God, vindicate me, defend my cause against an ungodly people, for those who are deceitful and unjust, deliver me. Most of our petitions in the church are so anemic. <laughs> they are so anemic because, in fact, we do not believe there's anybody on the other end who would do anything. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you cast me off? Why must I walk about mournfully because the oppression of my enemies? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to the holy hell. So in the midst of all the grieving... 42-43 disclosed the internal dialogue in which the faithful self speaks to the doubting self. Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God! For I will praise him. And then you know it's repeated in 43-5. Why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted? Hope in God! Why? Help in my God! It's about being cast down and bowed down and defeated. The question is asked twice, but the answer is vigorous twice. Hope in God, hope in God. Do not hope in self. Do not hope in progress. Do not hope in luck. Do not hope in maleness. Do not hope in whiteness. Do not hope in U.S. exceptionalism. It is exactly the God of fidelity who is the ground of hope. The psalm, it seems to me, anticipates the parable of Jesus in Luke 18 about the importunate widow. That's the only time I ever hear the word importunate. It means nagging. <laughs> she is a model of petition before the uncaring judge. Prayer says Jesus, of a nagging kind is an antidote to losing heart. So Jesus said, pray like that, and you will not lose heart. Our world of despair is a context for abandoned hearts. And when you say at the table, lift up your heart, lots of people out there say, I don't have any heart to lift up. That is why we gather our hearts. That is why we lift up our hearts. That is why you got to have heart. To tell the truth, to remember, to anticipate. Hope in God is the great refusal in Psalms. Sixth, the counter-testimony of the Psalms contradicts our world of amnesia and mediates to us a world of lively remembering. Technological consumerism wants us to forget everything. That's why there are no calendars in casinos. I have particular reference to the historical Psalms, the one in which Israel voices its canonical inventory of miracles. We think those Psalms are too long to use in liturgy, so we do little snippets. We ought to use the whole thing. We got time. We got time to remember. 
So Psalm 105 recites the miracles for 44 verses. And then says, in order that you may keep his statutes. If you remember, you might obey. The purpose of remembering is to remember the mandate and the summons. And the implied negative is that when the inventory of miracles is forgotten, there will be no obedience. Psalm 106, it's the same inventory, only now it's a recital of infidelity on Israel's part. So it goes on for 46 verses, and then it ends in verse 47. Save us and gather us from exile so that we may give thanks. This is the remembering of people who want to be gathered at home. It is a prayer that anticipates that given God's transformative action, our current negation can be turned to praise and thanksgiving. In Psalm 136, the history is recited again, but as you know, the second line of every verse is for his steadfast love endures forever. The whole history of Israel and the whole history of the world is a recital of divine fidelity. And I dare say in pastoral practice, what we ought to do Sunday by Sunday is add some verses to the canon. Just tell the organist to wait off. <laughs> because there are still miracles to be recited that are very local and not noticed until unless they are celebrated. Seventh. counter-testimony of the Psalms contradicts our world of normlessness by giving us a world of normed fidelity in the form of the Torah. So we got the Big Ten from Mount Sinai, but it says that Ezra, who is second only to Moses in Judaism, gave interpretation he gave exegesis. He gave application. And so we should never use in Psalm 1 or 19 or 119, we should never use the word law. We should use the word Torah that Israel celebrates with joy and gladness because Israel knows that the world is not normless. We are not free or we are not abandoned to do what we want to do. So in Psalm 19, after six verses that celebrate creation, then you get six parallels for Torah, six transformative verbs, and six new possibilities. The Torah of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of Yahweh are sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Obedience is healing and transformative. It's something we always have to learn again from the Jews. 
So Psalm 119 could say, Oh, how I love your Torah. Uh, my, your Torah is my delight because it is a gift to come down where you ought to be. Well, I propose that these seven features of the Psalter constitute a transformative alternative to the dominant ideology of our culture. It is no wonder that we love the Psalter because it mediates to us a better world. It is no wonder that we resist the Psalter because it exposes our world as a fraud. And thus I propose that every time we go near a psalm, we are engaging in subversive activity. It is a subversion of reality that subverts the big version of reality. Taken as a whole, the Psalter constitutes an alternative life world that refuses the thin world of greed, anxiety, self-sufficiency, denial, despair, amnesia, and normlessness. So he's... Uh... A little bit tough at times to listen because of that gravelly voice, but his insight is great in helping us understand the world of the Psalms, the Psalter, what it does, the variety of it, and the potential of it. So that's going to conclude our study in the Psalms. There's a lot that we have not covered, but hopefully you can appreciate this section of the scripture a little bit more because of the last six weeks. So any thoughts, closing questions, comments? The dogs didn't make it there. Thank you, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went a little bit over. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's. that's... <laughs> They're fine. All right. Well, we're going to take a few weeks off. And look for my next email, uh, and we'll, I don't know what we want to do yet. So if you have some thoughts of some things you'd like to talk about or study or have me research, uh, uh, let me know. And uh, we'll go from there. So have a nice, uh, have a nice hiatus for over the next few weeks. And uh, uh, we'll see those local on Sunday. So Larry, can you send the, the uh, email the uh the, the thing that was just the, the guy that just spoke. Can you email some of the, the, the link. That link to him? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that um, that was on YouTube. I'll be glad to uh uh find it. And um it, it it he had it was even a longer presentation, but I just wanted you to see the the world and counter uh world part of the Psalms. But uh yeah, I'll be glad to do that. No okay, problem. thanks. All right. You, you, well, have a safe trip. Thank you. Okay. Have fun. All right. We'll see you. Bye. 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 Bye.